Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, two of the stars of the just-released motion picture comedy Half Magic, Angela Kinsey and Heather Graham. Heather pulled triple duty on the film Half Magic, also writing and directing. Hello, and welcome to both of you, and congratulations on the movie. Thank you. Thanks what so is much. like the gestation time of something like this? Well, it, I started working on it about seven years ago. It was a very long process of getting it made, and um, I'm just grateful it's coming out at a great time for women and people thinking about you know women's rights and stuff like that. So I think the timing worked out, even though it was a long road. Yeah, almost like too well because I, <laughs> the movie almost becomes part of a movement that is heavier than you know. You're, the movie deals with serious subjects, you know, how do women view themselves and their sexuality, but in a very lighthearted sort of way. Yeah, and it's kind of weird because you know I wrote about sexism in Hollywood and a woman who has a boss who's a sexist sexual harasser, and it's just crazy. All these stories in the news came out right before the movie. Yeah, well, yeah. perfect timing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's totally. half of life, right? So just so everybody knows who we're talking to, Angela, people will know you from The Office. Yes. Also, I enjoyed you on the Netflix series, Haters Back Off. Thank you. I was never totally sure how I felt about the main character. She right. was sort of like a stinky cheese kind of thing. Right. We were like, this is delicious. No, this is awful. No, this is delicious. <laughs> but the ensemble, wonderful all Thank the way. You. And And Heather, I didn't even realize how many movies you've been involved with over the years that are like seminal parts of my life. <laughs> Not the ones that you would maybe even oh, guess. Oh, really? Like which ones? Like, okay, like License to Drive. Yeah. I didn't just see it. I read the book. Oh, there wow. was a book? I, I had a feeling you were going to say that. Oh this is God. back in the day when you get the Scholastic things. That's and so cute. There wasn't a, a novel that inspired the movie. The, the movie, somebody would watch it and have to scribble down the plot. You know that book wasn't that good, right? No. It, no, no, it really The movie was terrific. Yeah, that goes without saying. Yeah, the movie was good. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool that you enjoyed that movie. And um, Digstown, I enjoyed oh, wow. cool. so much that I actually cajoled a grown man into having 10 fights in one night. Are you serious? Did not work out as well for him as oh it did God. for Lou Gossett oh my God, in the gosh. movie. Mm-hmm. And Six Degrees of Separation is one oh, of my wow, favorite awesome. movies of all cool. time. So I found myself thinking about, and this totally ties into Half Magic, we all look back, I think, at a lot of things now in Hollywood and go, oh, was that maybe, everybody talks about how many shitty situations there used to be, was that a shitty situation? Now, I love James Woods as an actor, but certain things he does online lead me to believe he might be a somewhat shitty guy at times. I don't know, never met the guy. Like, was making Digstown a cool experience for you, or is this one of these things like, yeah, that was a shitty leading man? I think he falls into that category. Um, Specifically, I don't have a specific story to tell. I know a lot of women have had stories to tell about him, but I would say yes, I would put him in that category. Okay. And so, 
how much of this movie is imaginary and how much of it is like Crystal Lee is delightful as this completely obnoxious. He makes like a jerk so lovable. He's he's been on the show and I I told him to his face. I was like, oh, I thought you were like an asshole. Wow, he's really good at you're really good at acting like that. He's actually a very nice, thoughtful man as far as I I can tell. Same thing. I when I met him. I thought he was going to be such a jerk, and he was so nice. And I was like, well, you're just a tall drink of Well, that's water. like you, too. I mean, Angela is like, she's kind of famous for her office character, but in life, she's like so lovable and sexy and cool. I mean, and she's a brilliant comedian. So sweet. Thank you. <laughs> I, you know me, I just feel like a dork almost She's such all a good improvisational uh, actor. I mean, she came up with so much stuff that it was just very hard to shoot her scenes without laughing and ruining the take. You did laugh and ruin some. <laughs> you know, did. I did. We could hear you in the background. I have uh, to say, I don't know. I mean, I, th- it's a short list of like how how much fun I had. Like, like I tried to like put in my brain, like some scenes with Rain Wilson, obviously, and some scenes with um, Steve Little, as far as like male counterparts, but Thomas Patrick Lennon and I, like we just fight fun. Do you know what I mean? The like, two of we, you have terrific chemistry. We together. had so much fun. They came up with the funniest improvs. I love when Thomas Lennon said to you, I love you somewhat. Yes. yes. <laughs> I know. I love you somewhat. They were so really smart, like smart, yeah. funny improvs. And like, you know, the, the phone calls when you're drunk, like, you, well, you were funny. so trusting too. I mean, Heather had written this great script, but you were so giving as a director. You're like, okay, Ange, if you just feel something and you want to go for it, and and then I would improvise something, and then if you liked it, you'd be like, go. I want you to go more with that, and so we had a really good time. How long ago did you decide that? I mean, everybody gets the oldest cliche. Eventually, I want to direct. But how long ago did you realize it was something you were going to seriously pursue? You know, it's funny. It was not a dream, but it's, I think sometimes as women, sometimes we don't always believe we can make our dreams come true. So we get attracted to men doing what we want to do. <laughs> so I definitely had some different director boyfriends or I would have crushes on directors. And then I think I realized a part of me did want to tell stories and I went through a breakup and I was really sad. And I, I thought, I want to make myself laugh at everything that upset me in my life, bad relationships, sexism in the, in the business and Hollywood, um, growing up religious and being told I was going to go to hell for having premarital sex. I I developed movies for about eight years uh, that were women's stories, and none of them got made. I was so frustrated, and people would say things to me like, nobody cares about women's stories, and if you want to get a movie made, write about a man. And I just felt so frustrated about it. I thought, is there a way I can write this down and find humor in it? So you really got – I was curious about – you have to give your character this like deep psychological motivation. I know that. I know enough to know there has to be the thing they want, but there has to be the thing that they need as well. So I was – curious if you were drawing from experience about the whole Catholic totally from experience yes in fact that first scene of the movie um, the dad says to the daughter um, they're watching TV in my life I was watching the love boat with my dad but we could not afford that clip but uh, we'd be (laughs) watching the love boat and like a couple would go into a room and he'd be like this is wrong those people are not married they're having premarital sex and you can go to hell for that and I remember just thinking what is he talking about? Like, I don't know what sex is. I don't know what uh, hell is. And now I'm really As far as I know, out. they're taking a nap. You just <laughs> right. made this really I'm weird. Like, I love this show. Why are you like, this yeah. is one of my favorite shows and now I'm freaked. Now you're freaking me out. So you kind of answered my question, but I don't know how many movies you get to direct. I'm always, this is a question I always ask directors. Even if you get to do tons and tons, you still have to devote years to a project. What was it about this script, this story that made you go, I, I'm all in on this? Well, I wanted to make a movie that 
empowers women. And I wanted to tell a story about sexuality and a journey that I went on, which was growing up and being told, um, feeling fear and shame about sexuality. And um, and being a woman in this culture, I feel like you get a lot of mixed messages like, oh, you're being judged on your looks and you should be sexy, but don't be too sexy. And then just how do you get over feeling bad about your sexuality and see it as a great part of yourself and embrace it and see it as a spiritual thing. Because if you believe in a higher power or God, then you have to believe that he gave us our sexuality. So there's really, it's good. It's a good thing, you know? So how do I, I, I felt like I went on a journey to love my sexuality. It almost kind of seems like in a very big sense, religion was just there until we had the birth control pill. Like, they had to come up with some huge, gigantic reason to keep people from doing a thing that, yeah, God, I've got, it's like, it was it's probably, like weed. I don't smoke weed, but God, why would God make right. it if we weren't supposed to smoke it? And there it's kind of sexist. There was probably some medical issue. It's just like, you know, like, the way they process meat and dairy and things, because so people didn't die. There was right. probably, like, a medical thing of, like, well, you'll get funky penis if you do that. I don't know. Sorry. I'm you sorry. can t- t- talk okay. about. But I feel like religion is also <laughs> very man. Like if you think about religion, it's mostly men, and I think a lot of times they put a lot of negative things on women about sexuality. You know, and that they're like, "Oh, it's a man; he can do whatever he wants." But with a woman, it's just like you have to be perfect and never have sex with anyone. And I mean, when I grew up Catholic, it was like you should not have sex with anyone. Like extreme Catholics believe, unless you are going to have a child for procreation. Exactly. Yeah. Right. See, I was I was raised very, very, very Catholic. I was an altar boy, and I went to Catholic schools and stuff, but. I think my family was so embarrassed to talk about sex that they couldn't even condemn sex because then they'd have to bring, you know. Well, that that was my family. We just don't talk about anything. We're Southern. So, you right. know, just like, mm, I don't, well, y'all be happy. Okay, bye. My dad gave me a book and he's just like, uh, if you have any questions, yeah. it's probably in there. Here you go. Yeah. yeah. And about two years later, he's like, did you ever read that book? Okay, 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 okay. That was, that was the talk. Yeah, that that's very similar for me too. We just didn't talk about it. And I grew up, you know, I... I went to church my whole life, and I still I feel very connected still to church and that community, and I've seen such amazing things done for my family through the church community in my hometown. But um, but I I'm definitely you know I'm sure I'm the person that went to Hollywood, <laughs> you know, and sort of stepped out stepped out of the lane a little bit. But. So um, as luck would have it, my uh, my wife is pregnant, and we're expecting a daughter. Congratulations! Thank you, thank you. I had very little to do with that. <laughs> yes, you did. I, I did the did. heavy lifting months and months ago. <laughs> but you know, every guy says this, but it's true. You think about women. I think I've been fairly sensitive to women in my mm-hmm. adult life. I'm not the worst, but you think about it in a whole new way when you realize that you're going to have this tiny little girl in your life. Yeah. So, if I had a crystal ball and I could see. I mean, I'm sure I would want to see everything she'd be up to for the next few decades. But like, what is the thing that I should be most terrified about as a father of a girl for the, what are the sorts of things that's sort of a given that girls are going to experience that are kind of shitty? Oh, man. I mean, I have a nine year old daughter, so mm-hmm. I think about these things all the time now. Like she's so she's just pure innocent and joy right now. And I just want to protect her as long as I can. Um, but also make her equipped to know if a situation's wrong or if she feels uncomfortable for her to always feel like she can to stand up for herself and to say whatever she needs to, to get out of a bad situation and always to be able to talk to me. So I just try to, even now it's a very innocent thing and we haven't talked about much, but I just try to empower her that whatever she's feeling is a hundred percent. Okay. Whether if she's sad or scared or frustrated or mad or you know those are your feelings and let's talk through them but that that 
Because I think for young women, a lot of times your feelings aren't okay. They don't mm-hmm. matter, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and especially if um, if they're in a situation, I think, with a guy, like the guy's feelings are what matter. Like don't make him feel bad, right? I think a lot of times women get in a bad situation because they don't want to make a guy feel bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't worry about that. You stay true to yourself. And if it doesn't feel right, you get out. Right. And it is okay, you know? Yeah. So some of that kind of like just letting herself really know that her feelings matter and that she has power to. That's sweet. Does that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, I think Angela's talking about being a people pleaser, which I feel like sometimes as women, we're taught to be caretakers and people pleasers. And what we think and feel is not sometimes as important. So it's kind of retraining your brain to go, no, what I think and feel is important. Right. Yeah. And you can do anything. One thing my mom always said to me, even though she grew up um, in a in a culture where women didn't get to do everything they wanted, she said to me all the time, you can do anything you want to do. Why not you? She would say that to me all the time. I'd be like, oh, mom, I can't be president. She was like, sure you can. Why not you? Hmm. Why not? And so, like, I try to say that to my daughter, like, absolutely. Yeah, I think... I think our kids might be okay. I read this thing that um, I don't even know if they're millennials. We might be onto a whole new generation that's right. younger than them now that they don't do drugs like many of us did and they don't drink like many of us did, don't have promiscuous sex like many of us did. They're just kind of boring. And I think I'll make that deal. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. That's that. awesome. I know. My daughter right now, I'm still her favorite person. Like I'm her best friend and she would, she has chosen me over a play date with like someone she really likes like many times. And I'm like, oh, I just want to keep us like, like just close like that. And I know, I know the teenage years are looming ahead, so I don't know, but I do think, I think she would rather be home hanging out doing a board game. And I'm like, oh my God, I love that. I'm already getting blown off by a six-year-old boy. I have a son. (laughs) And we went to like, we'd go to the park and he'd be like, so now that we're at the park and I achieved my first objective, you know what would be really great is if you could call a couple of my friends and get them down here too, so I wouldn't actually have to talk to you anymore. (laughs) Well, then your little girl's going to break your heart because she's probably going to be like, I'll hang with you, dad. And you'll be like, (laughs) (laughs) thank you for being my friend. Um, So we're talking about the movie Half Magic, and it is uh, available now in theaters and video on demand and digital HD. I want to play a little game. Again, I'm always curious to know how much of a movie is imaginary and how much is drawn from experience. So I want to talk about some plot points, all first act, no spoilers whatsoever, and just give me some idea. Maybe this is something that happened to you personally, Heather or Angela, or maybe it just happened to a friend of yours one time, <laughs> however however you want to talk about it. First of all, the male leading man with the Messiah complex, is that really as prevalent as this movie would lead us to believe? Yes. What do you think, Angela? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, Heather, what I've sort of, uh, in the interviews you've done and things I've listened to about your career, I think you probably have ex- experienced it more than I have. As a sort of comedic character actor in television, um, I just don't think I came across as many of those guys. Um, That's good. What? Yeah, <laughs> that is good. I think that you. is good. But I, I know that they're out there. Mm-hmm. I, um, you talked one time about just saying that uh, there was something about Harvey Weinstein that was just actually scary, mm-hmm. like his presence. And um, I was at a party one time, and he was there, and I walked past him. And I, we didn't speak, but we had to, it was a very small area that I had to get by him. I had to scooch past him and it was after an award show and I was dolled up and he looked at me and I said to my friend, I was like, Ooh, 
I do not like that. I just got a feeling like I don't like how he looked at me. Like he looked at, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like he gets off on hurting people. It was like it was like a look of um, like a just sort of like disdain, but yet like lascivious, like like wondering like like that look of like I could probably have her. I don't know. Like that, you know what I mean? Like very uh-huh. dismissive. Like people but... are objects. Heather, yes. Heather, you seem like you've met him as well. Ah, yes. I <laughs> yeah. I yeah, he's yucky for sure. Yeah, there's a certain kind of man. I hate to stereotype, but there's a certain kind of powerful man who doesn't care about being sort of rotund, who has, who's kind of hairy. That's like a particular brand of, you know, like, I don't know how immersed you are in the restaurant world. It was not shocking to me that things came out about Mario Batali because they just seem like the film and food equivalent of Have you another. interviewed him? Um, a friend of mine worked for Mario for years. Okay. I mm-hmm. saw Mario Batali at his most, this is a whole different story, Mario Batali, uh, not in a sexual way, but um, on the morning of September 11th, I was at his restaurant. Oh. It, that's all. Wow, what a crazy life cross there. Of yeah. Crossing. I did the chew, and I did a baking segment with him, mm-hmm. and he was very nice to me, and um. He thought, you know, he like laughed and we had a nice time and I could see where he could be charming and he knows his way around the kitchen. But, um, you know, again, I met him in a place where I had my own power in that moment. You know, I wasn't someone that he would be for him. Exactly. Exactly. But um, those people that I think sometimes, well, there's just such a misuse of power and it's not just in the entertainment industry. Of course, you know, it happens in every profession where someone has a lot of power and isn't a good steward of that power. Well, and these are multidimensional people, you know, like Mario Batali quite rightly says that he um, promoted tons and tons of women to become chefs and, you know, mm-hmm. pastry chefs. For some reason, women always get to make desserts in really nice restaurants. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and he sa- went out of his way to say, I didn't promote them because they were women. I promoted them because they were the right people for the job. And I don't think that was some weird cover for this way. They won't know how evil I am. I think those two sides of him totally coexisted. People are comp- – Harvey Weinstein probably has nice sides. He's probably- charismatic, yeah. and he obviously made a lot of good movies. So I think he knows how to reel people in. But underneath it all, I think he's just – Maybe a sociopath. So these guys, a a guy like him or the leading man with delusions of grandeur, in your experience, are those people born or are they made by their success? So is it nature or nurture? Right. Kind of like a classic nature or nurture. I think it's probably a combination. Yeah. I mean, when people don't say no to you, when you're making a studio a lot of money, then a lot of times people don't say no to you. Right. And then you get catered to in odd ways. And I've only experienced that in just a tiny amount where I'm like, I mean, just like, this is so silly, but like being on a set and being like, oh, you know, you guys in this scene, I have to run. And I, you gave me nylons. Could I have socks? And then you come to set the next day and there's a basket of like 30 socks. I'm like, I just needed one pair of socks, guys. But this is like such a ridiculously small analogy, but you could see where like, you know, what if all of a sudden I became the sock person? I need everyone. Angela Kinsey needs socks. <laughs> well, but you know, it's just a small moment. No one was imagine. punished for this behavior before either. Yeah. If you think about it, the sexual harassing behavior, no one ever got fired for it. This is the first time ever that anyone's ever gotten fired for it or right. held accountable on yeah. such a on such a public platform yeah. to be held accountable. I remember I read. Don't ask me why the novel Valley of the Dolls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's like a never got to the movie, and, and there's a scene at the end where the creepy old studio head guy goes out to some beach house in Malibu, and there's a director doing a casting with some mm-hmm. young starlet and he's like leave her for me and he's like the emperor in the last star wars movie yeah. but that was I, I think that 
that book was completely drawn from stuff that at least hearsay of things that had right. happened in Hollywood. So Harvey Weinstein kind of correctly points out, I'm 20 years ago, this was, you guys are killing me for a thing that was widely tolerated. It's never been right, but. Well, Tippi Hedren tested, uh, t- uh, yes. she um, wrote something about Alfred Hitchcock yes. doing that to her. Oh, I didn't oh, know about was, that. Yeah, yeah, I read it. Oh, gross. I mean, yeah. she was, I mean, it sounded like she was terrorized yeah. by him, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's, and I think that's what's, um, what happens is it becomes sort of like the blueprint of behavior. So then everyone says, okay, I agree to this. And, and then I they sign see people on. getting away with it. If you think about yeah. the movie Chinatown, that movie ends with a very gross scene like that where, um, uh, and it's funny that Roman Polanski directed that movie, but yeah, it's like her daughter, her father's daughter, he has sex with his daughter and they have a daughter and then he incests that daughter. I don't oh, know if you I remember forgot, that scene I forgot in that about movie. That part. Thank but you. it's sort of like he gets away with it. This powerful man just gets away with abusing women. So I think finally women are like, we're fed up. This yeah. is going to stop happening now. Yeah, it is. It, yeah, and, and it's a messy time right now, but I think it's ultimately for the best. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's right. for the best. Um, more stuff that I'm curious where it was drawn from in the movie Half Magic. A female empower- empowerment seminar focused heavily on female genitalia. <laughs> There are classes like that, and I have taken some, yes. I have not. I have not. But I told Heather, I remember that day we were filming, I was like, you know, like occasionally you go to a yoga class and there's a pamphlet for some kind of women's retreat, and I'm always like... Yeah, no, I don't. I think I'm good. And then Heather's like, "No, I went to them." Like you are, you really have. I feel like explored. I've explored like, a lot of things. A lot of things. Well, we that... had these people in the movie, and we had to cut them out. But it's Vera and Steve Badansky. We didn't. Have, well, our movie was really long, but they wrote this book called "Extended Massive Orgasm," and they gave a demonstration where the husband gives his wife an extended massive orgasm. That was the first day we started shooting, and I think you guys might have been I slightly in, freaked out. I stayed out. in the trailer. <laughs> I was like, I'm not. I'm like, because we're all in the seminar and we're all kind of part of it but I was like I'll Am I on camera? But I think it's easy for men to figure out orgasming, right? I think it's a little mm-hmm. easier. It's more straightforward. I think for women, like, okay, for some women, maybe it's super easy. But I think it's a little bit more complicated. So they teach women how to have longer, better orgasms. And I did read their book. And they are super interesting. Well, and I think you really wanted for women to feel okay about their bodies. 100% yeah. okay. And like... No matter where your body's at or how it might look to other people, like that you love yourself. And that's a big part of your message, I feel like, is like yes. learning to love yourself. Yeah. And um, and I think that's what that seminar kind of was about. And I would say that to your daughter, too. I think it's important for women to just go, because I think a lot of pressure is put on women and their looks to just go, Every day, just, I look great. I, I, I'm beautiful. You just tell yourself. Because if you look outside for approval, there's always going to be someone that doesn't think that you're great. So just to decide every day that you look beautiful and not give your power away to the culture to say, well, this is beautiful or this isn't. Well, right. and it, to an extent, it really can be your decision because there's certainly women and a lot of men who are less than conventionally perfect who just – They've decided that they're on fire. It's like right. your life force, it's you know, and it's, it's a great way to yeah. live. Yeah. And and the, the it's a virtuous circle because when you decide that you're really attractive, you're you, you actually are. become more attractive. Right. You know, yeah. confidence is is very very appealing. Um, weird dicks come up in the movie at one point. <laughs> that was Angela. I improvised. You that. improvised. And I actually, in this interview, I already said funky dicks. So <laughs> I don't know. Clearly, I think that's a funny go to. I guess. Um, what was that? And from, squeezing Angela? squeezing the base of the weird. Dicks oh, that's Angela. Angela's improv. <laughs> Angela. I had a friend tell me. Um, so, you know, like Heather, um, a lot of 
this movie was inspired by real encounters she had and real experience she had. When she let me improvise in that moment, I remember uh, a, a friend of mine was single after quite a while. Like she, uh, she'd been married for a long time and she was single and I was newly single and she was telling me what's out there. And I had been, I'd been married, you know, I, I had been with the same person for, um, 14 years. I was not a promiscuous person, you know, do the math there. There was not a lot. I was completely like terrified of the world. I mean, when I met my ex-husband, I had a flip phone, you know, and <laughs> it was a different world. I didn't know how to text, <laughs> you know? Um, so I didn't even know what the whole sexting texting thing was, but anyway, so I had a friend come over and she was literally like, here's the deal. There's some weird dicks out there. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, I don't want that. And then she was like telling me these experiences that she had. And one of them was this guy telling her to like squeeze that, the base of his dick. Anyway, so I, I, I guess it was just like in my brain when I went into that scene, you know. And um, anyway, it's she had some horrific stories. But I myself, as you know, just sort of... I, I thought it was a special trick that you do. No, <laughs> like, where did Angela no, get that? No, it was a story that was told to me. I'm I'm so lame, you guys. I then, after she told me these stories about what it was like dating out there, I just then became a shut-in <laughs> for a good bit. Except you got remarried, so not too shut-in. I married a nice guy. Yeah, recently. She no, married I, a baker. I know. I know, and you baked together we on do, YouTube. And he's so sweet, and he's such a good person, and I think, you know... The one thing I wish is I would have met him sooner in life because we, I think about all these, all these things we want to do, you know, and I'm like, oh, we have like 40 years. We got to get going. No, I got plenty um, of time. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, really nice thing to be able to say about your partners. I just yeah, wish I'd met really. you sooner. Yeah. Cause yeah. I, I love the hell out of my wife, but like I was like 28 when we met and I was yeah. like, perfect. That yeah. is a good time. You didn't, you didn't need to be around when I was 23. <laughs> I don't, I don't think you'd still be around if you'd been that's, around when I was 23. That's what my husband says too. Cause I was such a nerd too. Talk about like, I was taking like the extra classes at college and like, <laughs> like when I turned 21, I was writing my thesis paper and I had a little coronita <laughs> and typing my paper. <laughs> cute. I think you don't really know who you are until you're 28 anyway. So I There's think that's a great age. Sort of you. magic about that. Yeah. I feel badly for my wife because I didn't you know this is a perfect example of like mm -hmm. the casual sexism that all yeah. of us are you know men are uh, all guilty of at least a little bit of it I was like I think we really met at a great age I wouldn't have wanted to meet you any sooner and she's like has it ever occurred to you that I am five years younger than you oh, and that therefore I did not meet you at the right age for me hmm. and oh. we've been together for like 12 years and she said that to me about one year ago and to be honest with you the thought had never occurred to me <laughs> <laughs> it's cool you're willing to explore that and think about that i think it's cool when men are like let me let me just think about this for a second it's yeah. awesome yeah my husband's six years younger than me so and that was like hard for me because i was like oh my gosh my sisters were like angela look at you robbing the cradle <laughs> yeah but but we're parents i feel like once you're a parent it's like such the equalizer of life yeah i think once you're older than like 33 yeah is, you go like 28 33 59 yeah. yeah mentally yeah 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 yeah, I haven't changed yeah. a whole lot in in a while. Yeah. Um, I have to let you go. Oh, sorry. I um, it's I, fun talking to you. It's Thank really you. nice talking to you too. I had a bunch of other questions. Um, but uh, we people, talk too much. People can find out about <laughs> the other things I was curious about by watching the movie themselves. Congratulations! Really, I'm just so happy for people. I know it is hard to get movies seen through to the finish line, and it's harder for women to get movies to the finish line. So congratulations. Yeah. The movie is called Half Magic. It is in theaters now. It's also available everywhere. Video, on demand, 
and Digital HD. Thanks so much. Thanks. Much more to come here on The Tully Show. I think we might get a brief cameo from Kevin Kraft. Also, David Chang, the star of the new Netflix series, Ugly Delicious. That and uh, more, no, pretty much just that. Coming up on Faction Talk. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, one of the preeminent chefs of his generation. His Momofuku empire grows daily, and he is the star of the new Netflix series, Ugly Delicious. Hello, and welcome, David Chang. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming by. I uh, I participated briefly as a waiter in the New York restaurant scene, so it's kind of always held this attraction for right. me. I don't go as far as like reading food blogs, <laughs> which is a fairly insane world from what I can tell. It's like being a sports fan. It seems to go deeper, radical quicker. <laughs> yes, I agree. There are a lot of casual sports fans, but they're, they're like, if you're a food fan, you get insane about so-and-so registered this, uh, this address, so I think that means they're, you know, the restaurant group group is probably going to open this place over here. And maybe Comic Con is a better bet. It's it's obsessive, <laughs> yeah. and it's so interesting because it's happened in our lifetimes. Uh, America was still largely indifferent to food when when you and I were kids. This uh, <clears throat> real food. It's it's weird to say popularity of food since food's been popular forever, right? Yeah, Everyone right. has to eat it. But in terms of the intersection of culture and where it's in and the stature it has is just very strange i i joke that it's like making uh coal miners in vogue all of a sudden right it's like hey everyone cares about coal you know it's like no one cares that much on a media level and all of a sudden everyone cares so much about something that no one cared about before it's very strange it is it is weird right like yeah i want to have a beautiful house i don't need to see you make it when the food network came out i was like oh that's cute that'll last a couple of months how many times can i watch mario batali make pasta well it turns out several million times yeah and like these tasty videos where they get like millions and millions of views upon immediate upload it's hard to describe why obviously i think there's some social media element to it but as a whole, people care more about food than ever before. Uh, all walks of food, like the farmers to the waiters to the pastry, to it's, it's sort of insane. Is anyone actually interested in waiters? As a former waiter, I hate waiters. Um, I know you can't actually bag on them, but I, I, I'm, but I, I was, mean, I was the waiter who was friends with the cook, so I know what you guys think of us. And you're, right. <laughs> and, and you're right. It's ridiculous that waiters make more I, money than cooks. I have said some terrible things. And, they deserve uh, all of it. They're awful. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting. You have now a group of people that know the waiters, you know, where they migrate to in terms of the new restaurants. No, really? Yeah, it's a thing. Front of the house are people, stars now? Not stars per se, but they know. They, 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 they're known. They're a known commodity, that's, as they should be. That's Sure, sure. That's very, that's very, very kind of you to say as long as you still are employing them because we all know they're going to go the way of the dodo before too long, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So you got this show, Ugly Delicious. How you can't just do another food show how is this show different in your mind um because it's almost not about food even though it's all about food uh it's it's using food as a vehicle to talk about uh the tough conversations the interesting things that no one really talks about but they talk about um and i i don't know it's like we almost wanted to make it like the anti-chess table which is like the the the, the high Every chef wants to be on chef's table for the most part, but it, it presents a narrative that's very, 
I don't know, singular. And this is not about food. It's about how food connects everyone mm-hmm. without sounding too cliche. Well, what does that mean? I watched the clip, for example, with uh, Ali Wong and talking yeah. about – now, I have an, an Asian wife, so I'm well aware of the restaurant where you can actually see the, the mop well, is usually the place that's going to have the better pho. I knew what she was talking about. But I guess part of what I was saying in terms of the vehicle and going down this rabbit hole is to make people a little bit more aware, a little bit more empathetic, and to question their own sort of default settings to things in culture. So one of the things that Ali was talking about in that clip wasn't the fact that uh, root service is awesome. It's just that it's a different kind of service if you go to a specifically Asian restaurant that's Chinese or Vietnamese or Korean. It's a, it's more curt, it's more abrupt, and it's very different than Western service. It's actually like the polar opposite, but mm. doesn't mean it's bad. Mm. I just had uh, dim sum in, in Hong Kong the other day, and they were mean. Yeah, but that's part of like... It was not part of the charm. Not, it's not supposed to be the charm, but like that's like just how it is. Yeah, it is, yeah. Right? And I think it's understanding that from a different point of view, right? So I guess to tie this into Ali was saying, when we're in China and I was having a hard time eating some of the, the very uh, gelatinous foods, I was learned that a lot of people in China hate American food because they think it's just like all the same and it tastes terrible. And if you talk to people that go to China, Americans that are visiting China, a lot of people come back and are like, oh, it's terrible. It's not very good. It's People are the same, right? They're just talking crap about the other culture without really understanding anything about it. Right. And that's that's basically it. I'm not saying that you can't feel that this service is rude or wrong, but partly is maybe you should have a better understanding or try to have a better understanding of what's happening. It's refreshing for me to hear a, a cook of your stature admit that some exotic things don't totally work for you because it's a little obnoxious how much of a badge that is for I'm not just talking about Anthony Bourdain I think he actually likes the stuff that he eats but like I'm here to tell you that ch- feet are not actually the best part of a chicken I and nobody's going to convince me otherwise that's what they had to eat so they acquired a taste for it it's now, possible. Li- liver is actually one of the better cuts of an animal right but feet is that's well, what you settle for well that depends chicken feet is a specific thing yeah and I think one of the things that I, that we're trying to debate in the show is if you like chicken feet doesn't mean that you have bad taste. I don't think you can say no, that. Of course not. Everybody's... It's just simply like you don't have to like it yourself, right? Right, it's right. A, but yeah, it's don't, don't get cultural, down on me for it's not... exactly. It's a cultural thing, and mm-hmm. I, I I also hate that where it's like this uh, food snobbery police where it's like no 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 you have to love this like no it's okay like mm-hmm. I can eat Domino's pizza too it's sure. it's fine don't tell me I'm a philistine. I don't really like truffles. A lot of people do. I don't mind telling you. Doesn't people always don't like make fries better. Well, that's kind of crazy. Those people really need to open their mind a little. Bit. <laughs> but like, what kind of truffles are you getting? And that's the thing. It's like yeah. partly understanding that if you're getting truffles on French fries, you should hate it. It's a chemical substance that's an artificial compound that's not. It should never taste that like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So part of that is just having a better understanding before you make a judgment that is like potentially degrading or before. You love something blindly, right? Do a little homework. I read an article that uh, that you that was about you, I guess, in the New Yorker about ten years ago now, and I was struck by, in many ways. Please correct me because I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something. You seem like in a lot of ways you're a guy that you said you didn't want to be at that point in time. You've got the, the empire, which, it, and you've got the TV mm. stuff. Yeah, I mean, then. Uh, it's funny. It's like 
when I was younger, I never thought that I'd even be around. And so it was simply about survival and that struggle to just remain in business. And I read that article recently, and it's like looking at a yearbook photo and you're not exactly happy with what you see. And I'm not mad at myself for thinking and living that way because I've been able to grow from that. But the reality is it's like nothing should be life or death Mm -hmm. unless, you know what I mean? Like nothing should equate to that. And I just didn't have enough life experiences. I didn't know any better. It doesn't mean that I can rationalize how I believed and how I acted, but it's simply like, that's what, that's where I came from, you know? And, um, Yeah, I mean, I'm a different person than I was then. I still am not, like, exactly where I want to be personally, Mm -hmm. but it's just been a giant process, right? It's tough. I heard one time that if you are very, very successful at, like, very few people set out to be CEOs, but if you're very successful at doing almost anything you love, ultimately the job that you get is CEO because you have this company that's really big and you don't end up, you know, I I compare it to entertainment where if you're a stand-up comic, the best thing that could ever happen to you is you star in movies and never have to do stand-up comedy ever again. I know cooks, I know successful cooks, and at a certain point, if if everything goes according to plan, you kind of stop cooking. Do you like being a CEO? Because that's kind of what you are. I mean, Mm. among many other things, obviously. Yeah, no, I mean, like, yes and no. I mean, we have brought someone on board who is a partner now and runs the business end. Um, What I've learned is through coaching, because I was a really bad manager of people, you know, and I have no choice. You have to get better. And I, I don't have any kids yet. But I liken it to my friends where they're like, oh, I got to be like a a real person now. I can't have the same viewpoints that I used to have. And as much as I don't want to do many of the things, it's my responsibility to get better at them. So, sure, would I like to have no responsibility whatsoever and only – I'm friends with comics. I always am criticizing them because I'm like, your job is not that hard. You're only responsible for yourself. And I tend to complain too much about how much responsibility I have. So almost all of that burdens on me and how I look at it. So, um, you know, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's definitely hard. Did I want to, Do I want this job and how I envisioned it? Absolutely not. But it gives me the freedom to put people in positions to be successful, to build a better business. And one thing why I got in the hospitality business uh, is I genuinely almost like service to other people. That gives me pleasure to make people happier or to see that someone else become successful and if my decisions if i have to do some of the work that no one else wants to do then so be it that's what we got to do and then there's also the the element of it which you touched on in that 2008 article where if you're going to make luxury goods which i'm going to call what you do essentially a luxury good you can't really be very successful just selling things to purists who really get it. Now, my wife makes very nice children's clothing. If if she only depended on people who really understood why it was better than the stuff at Target, she'd go out of business. To a certain extent, she depends on the rich lady who just goes and throws a bunch of money around. And you have the same – sometimes you put out beautiful food and it gets paid for and eaten by somebody who has no idea what the hell they're eating. Right. How do you – um, I think those things, that's changing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, passage of time is a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And while that might be true, and that has been true for a long time, especially eating in America, I think the younger generation, they're savvier than ever before in most everything, but particularly in food. Mm-hmm. And they know more than 
any preceding generation. And I don't think that's ever going to be the case. You're not going to see someone walk into a restaurant or one of my restaurants and not know anything. Like at a certain age group, that just stops. And I think it's really the people that grew up with the internet. Well, good. I hope you're right. I think the internet's got to be good for something at the end of the day. But I understand what you're talking about. There's, There's something that doesn't feel good about it, which is why we try to make our food accessible to everyone, which in and of itself is not a true statement because I'm not feeding the world, right? You're still feeding a select few people, but you're just trying to build the best company and and, and just get this momentum and, and feed this thing. Right. Well, and there's people, I know I, I was that person, and I imagine you were this person at some point, too. There's some people who eat at really beautiful restaurants six nights a week because they could afford to. But then there's also kids who really, really love food who maybe only do it once a month or once every two months. And I know when I was a server, that was our th- it was like an exchange program. Yep. Servers would come in to, I worked in one of the Tom Colicchio restaurants, and we'd give them a whole bunch of food. And then when we go to their place, they'd give us a whole bunch of food. And none of us could afford it, but we were really doing it because we really loved the food, and we were enthusiastic about trying things. Right. You know? So let's talk about the show, Ugly Delicious. I love that it opened. The very first shot of the credits is uh, Titano's. Yeah. Which is the best pizza I think I've ever had. It's it's up there. New York, what I love about New York is you can have a serious debate about where your favorite pizza is. And, and, and that's not, we're not trying to proclaim who's got the best pizza, but, you know, New York is sort of the home of, of pizza as we know it today, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, I'm a fan of Lucali's. I think it's the best. And someone else might say it's Grimaldi's. And that's the beauty of it, right? Um, yeah, the pizza episode was fun. A lot of lot of good eating that one. A lot of it ultimately comes down to the experience. I remember going to Titano's out in Coney Island when there would still be the, the grandmother would be bussing tables. And it was almost like nobody could tell her to stop working. She'd be this old lady in a, in like a, a nightgown <laughs> picking up your paper plate. Like, please let me just throw away my plate for myself. You shouldn't be working here anymore. Or Dom at, uh, you know, there's DeFaro's Pizza is, if you haven't been, you should go because he's literally a living legend. He's mm-hmm. like 89 years old and he's the only one that makes the pizza. It's 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 quite the place. It's funny to me that there are, and this doesn't apply to so much to the places in that episode, but I was raised in New Jersey and I have a taste for a lot of really simple things. Bread is a thing. My wife thinks I'm absolutely insane about bread because I'll drive across town to get a loaf of bread and I would tell her it's not that I'm insane about it it's that all of this bread in this entire city of Los Angeles is horrible so I'm not trying to find the best bread I'm just trying to find an actual loaf of bread here and I can't believe how difficult it is and it's funny to me that I'll find a place downtown where a bunch of guys with long funny beards have figured out a way to make an eight dollar loaf of bread that finally tastes exactly like the two dollar 50 cent loaf of bread that the little old Russian ladies are making on right, Santa Monica right. Boulevard. A lot of these people are finding their way back to the Titano's pizza. Right. And I think that has to do about uh, finding an experience that's not downloadable, right? You, you, because of the technology that's out there, you have more access to food knowledge than ever before, but that doesn't translate to something that's delicious. And you're finding, I think, a, a younger audience of cooks and artisans that are like, wait a second, I want to go down this fucking, oh, I'm no, cursing. No, go right ahead. I want to go down this rabbit hole and and see what comes out of it. And you're seeing a lot of te- a lot of progress on baking bread. Like, bread baking in America is unbelievable right now. And I don't know if you still feel that way about bread in L.A. Do you still feel it's bad? I still don't think anybody's as good as Pector's in Newark, New Jersey. How much of that is nostalgia, though? Pretty sure you could blind taste test me. I, I honestly do feel that way. And you're not looking at sourdough. You're looking at I'm rye. 
Okay. I'm old school. Okay. I don't even care for sourdough bread. That's my <laughs> and that's my thing. Hey, that's my that's my problem. I know I should be eating it. It's better for your health. No, I'd rather I'd rather have a nice loaf of pumpernickel any day. Well, do you put anything on that bread? Well, I mean, today I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch. Because if you have decent bread, you can have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and it's perfectly <laughs> delightful and healthy and all that. You almost sound like a chef. Yeah, yeah I really... Very per- peculiar in particular. I loved the... Uh, there was a website that I don't even know if it's currently around called uh, Chowhound. Yes. And the way that they put it was so perfect. They said, we're not foodies, because foodie is all the trappings of the scene. A Chowhound is somebody where when there's a decent sandwich next door, but there's a really good sandwich 10 minutes away, we'll always make the drive. That's the kind of person that I that I am. I just need could i just refuse to eat crap we only get so many meals on this earth amen to that you know uh, speaking of bread and pizza so you spent a little bit of time out here you've opened a restaurant mm-hmm. here and all that i don't think i still because i have family in new jersey and i was back there recently and they're telling my six-year-old son eat all the pizza you can while you're here because you're in new jersey and you can't get this where you're from and now i'm not going to start a fight in a you know in a living room in new jersey with my family but I feel like that gap is almost non-existent. I I would go so far as to say that the average slice of pizza in New, in L.A. right now is just as good as the average slice of pizza in New York, and that says just as much about how far New York has fallen. Right, right. I mean, but New York's also having a resurgence. It's just like it's a ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. And not that long ago, people were like, "Oh, the pizza in L.A. is not that good." There would be articles written about that. Yes. Or it's the water or whatever. It's it's just a matter of do you have skilled enough labor? Do you have the ability to execute it? And do you have access to ingredients? L.A. had all of that. It was just a matter of time. So New Jersey's got a new spot. Pete Wells just wrote about it. It's like Jersey City. He gave it three stars, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you got great pizza in New York. But it's a different kind of pizza in L.A. too, right? It's all a little bit different, and that's what makes it great. I had a long conversation, because I am nuts about this stuff, I guess, with the guy who brought Joe's Pizza from Bleecker Street out to L.A., and he said the water thing makes him laugh. He said, when I was in New York, I had to change the, I had to go through our, our, our water filtration system like twice a year to clean all the gunk out. He said, I haven't needed to do it once since I was in Los Angeles. So unless you're actually trying to argue that it is the gunk, that has been made It's not the gunk, pizza? but there is science behind that. It yeah. has to do with the pH level mm-hmm. and how hard or soft the water is because okay. it interacts with the, the gluten. It's a real thing, believe it or not. Okay. And uh, L.A. Deli stuff, I was uh, glad to see on your social media the other day. You posted something from Langer's, which... The place is awesome. It's amazing. And yeah. I wish like I could make a restaurant that looks exactly like it. It's so cool. It's so perfect cool. diner, I know, yeah. It's so cool, and it just got so much character and charm. And mm-hmm. you know what? Like... I don't want to even get to debate what's better or worse. Like, they're both equally awesome with catches. They're just different kinds of experiences. And that's what everyone asks me about L.A. versus New York food right now. It's just, it's similar but different, right? Yeah. Like, It's like, just cool that we can have the conversation. It's at least a debate at this point. And I would say one thing about L.A. is that on a national level, I think, for, for the past few years, I, I've been coming here a long time. I've always found that it was way savvier than people ever gave it credit for. Mm-hmm. And, like, people would always say, oh, we have the best deli in the world, right? Like, you could... I don't think people understood, like, that's a real conversation. You can actually have that conversation. And there's nothing that a New Yorker should ever laugh at. You know, that's a real conversation. You could have a long debate about which is better, Katz's or Langer's. Yeah, all in all, I mean, the Katz's experience that the When Harry Met Sally place is pretty 
I mean, they still have the signs up for you know sending salamis to your boy in World War II. Yeah. It's kind of hard to. It's hang an with. amazing place. Yeah, right, Katz's right. is this institution, but yeah. it's it's they're both great. So the TV show is uh, it's available now, and it's called Ugly Delicious. And I guess you've already touched on this, but it has been trendy over the years to bash U.S. attitudes toward food. But do you think in going out and experiencing, talking to people and experiencing the world of food that we Maybe it is becoming a passe uh, opinion that Americans don't value and appreciate food. I don't know if it's passe. Mm -hmm. I think we're still a very young food culture, Mm -hmm. and that's what's changing, is that we're becoming more sophisticated. Um, We're still very far places like Japan, where everyone knows the season, everyone knows everything Mm -hmm. about food there. And it's just a matter of time before we're there. But we're on the right track, I believe. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate uh, you talking to me. Cool. And I appreciate. I look forward to checking out the rest of your uh, of your show. It is called Ugly Delicious. It's on Netflix now. Uh, this has been David Chang on the Tully Show. Well, it has been a big star-studded Tully show, perhaps the most star-studded show I've ever done. Heather Graham and Angela Kinsey from the film Half Magic, also David Chang from the Netflix series Ugly Delicious. But I have saved the guest with the highest superstar celebrity wattage for last. Hello, and welcome back, Kevin Kraft. Yes. I (laughs) I crop dusted all those people you mentioned on my way in. Are you aware that that's the joke that you made about last week's guest? (laughs) Is that going to be... I crop dust everybody. Is that going to be your thing? Yes. Do you... That's that's my way of telling them they're not worthy of me. (laughs) Did you see Heather Graham when she was in here? I didn't. I I saw pictures that Greg Fitzsimmons posted. Mm -hmm. I really like her. She's so cool. She'll always be Mercedes from License to Drive. To I me. brought that up to her, and oh, I can get bummed out. No, 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 no. She's really, really, really polite and really friendly. So she talked through her teeth. I was like, because I wanted to talk about other movies that she. She actually told me that James Woods was a dick when she made Digstown, which is where I was really going with that. Oh, okay. But I wanted to list the movies that were seminal in my life, so I started with License to Drive, and she t- she went, oh. That's so cool. <laughs> One of her teeth just shatters from stress. It's weird how people are bummed out about the stuff they did in the eighties. Nah, I I, I get like it. John Cusack is like bummed out about all of his like better off dead and One Crazy Summer, which and- completely ignores the fact that he actually he is a big eighties icon. But he had a like a really successful career for a long time, and I feel like by yeah. being such a dick about the eighties stuff, he's actually ended up rubber gluing himself into where people stick the 80s thing on him more than it really deserves to be there. I, I don't. I think she's just tired of... I don't think she thought it was a very good movie. I watched it again last week. I watched it like two months ago. I have it on DVD. I fucking <laughs> love that movie. I read the book. I told her that. Do you remember Scholastic Books? They, they just did a, a movie on everything, or a book on every movie that came out. Yeah, right? they, they, they would... Somebody would... Some poor asshole who probably wanted to be writing movies would instead have to, I'm assuming, sit in some screening room in Hollywood and watch a movie like five times and scribble down the plot points, or maybe they gave him the script and they would flesh it out. They would novel. It was a novelization. I still want to read... Uh, I watched Die Hard for like the 10 trillionth time the other night. I want to read the book that that's based on. There's a book? They didn't, yeah. It's really? based on a book. Yeah, they didn't like reverse it like Scholastic did. Wow. Tons I, of subtext, I'm sure. I know, because I, I want to be like... 
I want to read how they play out the action. Like, oh, and then John McClane steps on. Oh, gross. And some blood's coming out. Oh, and then he totally punched the guy. It hurt him, but like really bad. Oh, fuck. And then he ducked under uh, Hans Gruber's punch and then punched the guy. Oh, and the German guy fell out the window. What? Carl Winslow? (laughs) (laughs) I think someday somebody should take a dumb movie and novelize it and actually give it the subtext that it didn't have originally. Oh, that would be great. And I think you might be the band for the job. Unfortunately, we have to go. Woof, man, that hour flew by. I know, I know. Well, when you're talking to friends, you know, it's not even really work. (laughs) (laughs) At Kevin Craft on Instagram, at Kevin Craft Sucks on Twitter, uh, Mad Scientist Party Hour Podcast. Thank you to you and all of us.